0: Hello everybody, this is Benjamin Kitchings with History Voyager. This is an oldie but goodie. This is my, basically my interview with Dana Blankethorn. I have been way behind on releasing these interview-based podcasts, and I apologize for that. Anyway, he is a journalist that works in my hometown of Metro Atlanta. And, And basically what we've got going on here is he talks about basically kind of the historical aspects of the new economy and also kind of the new what's going on with the new economy at least from his perspective. The reason I wanted to jump on this podcast and and do it up like this real quick do up a introduction is I wanted to talk to you guys about some stuff I've been noticing in my conversations with people all over the world First of all, it shocked and amazed me to learn how intelligent everybody else that I've spoken to about American politics actually is all over the world. The other thing that shocked and amazed me was that Americans tend to have this reputation as being gullible, easily led, and a little bit stupid. Now, I don't think I'm gullible, easily led, or a little bit stupid. And I don't think you are either, because after all, you're listening to a deep-dive history podcast. So that's not something of the gullible, stupid, or easily led. But nonetheless, there we are. I do want to talk about that I can see the dividing lines of our new economy already. I can see it. And what I want to talk about is the rest of the world, our so-called peer countries. They have decided that we are going to put out, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to put the high-speed Internet out into the deepest boonie because, ladies and gentlemen, we need to get our farmers and our little town, small-town folk, we need to get them into the global economy. And if that's not happening via the government, it's going on via Facebook. Facebook is actually the phone company and the internet provider for a huge chunk of the world's population. Something I was not aware of before I began these interview-based podcasts. All right, so in the immediate post-COVID or post-vaccine World that we're experiencing, I guess, from a few days ago into the future, we are going to have a globalized economy, a truly globalized economy, when it comes to what we call the thought workers in the world, in the world of work. And I think America is not prepared for that. I really do. And I have a couple of quick suggestions as to how to do that, based almost entirely on what I've heard from different experts on my podcast. The first thing I want to talk about is, we are the only first world country on earth that ties healthcare to jobs, and we do that basically because that's how it used to work, and that's how it always used to work the whole rest of the country, I mean, the whole rest of the world doesn't really do that. Their governments give them health care. They see, basically, the government as something to provide for the citizenry, to invest in the citizenry. So, therefore, these jobs, like in Germany or in Austria or in Japan or even, and this is going to be true, I guarantee you, you're going to have folks in this country working for people in China. So they're not going to provide you health care because they expect their labor force to already have health care. So that's the one thing. I, I think we need to have good quality health care, even to the point of building hospitals in rural areas. And here's another thing I need—I think we need to do that I wasn't really thinking needed to happen before I started talking to all these people on my podcast. Our government, the United States of America, needs to run high-speed internet out into the deepest boonie. Because here's something I think is going to happen as a result of basically a lot of things. I think that this modality that we lived in of the cities being essentially theme parks for the middle, upper middle class, wealthy, and even the 1%, I think that day and age is coming to a close. If not now, then soon. I think very, very soon, very smart people in this country, because I don't care what the rest of the world says, I know we have smart people in this country, but I think very smart people in this country are going to start realizing that the supply chain ethos by which we have set up our food distribution, because, I don't know if you're aware, but an alarming percentage of our food actually does a little bit of time in China. For example, I think people are going to call that into question. And I think people are going to start realizing they have to have small-scale agriculture uh, very, very soon. And I think this is going to be because of health, and I think it's also going to be because of convenience. So I think people are going to move out into the the rural areas more and begin some kind of small-scale agriculture to a much greater degree than they're doing even right now. Although it is picking up, I mean, as I've you know, lamented on my podcast, uh, the at least where I live, raising chickens on your suburban property has suddenly become kind of a wealth badge in this country. Now, I think that's not a good idea because of my, you know, my involvement in a deep dive podcast in the Spanish flu, but there it is. So maybe also the government, the county or the state governments or even the feds need to start educating folks on, on, Animal husbandry, and we need to take that away from YouTube or maybe use the government to augment YouTube so, therefore, you're not Googling up a YouTube video as to how to raise chickens or whatever you want to raise, and have the government sort of educate these suburban folks in how to raise chickens properly and in a safe manner, as an example. And again, the reason I think we need to do this is because. I actually believe that our food is going to start to come from our neighbor and not from some weird agribusiness that does a little bit of packaging or whatever in China and then reships the food back and forth. I also think that basically we're in a problem. I, I really do in this country. I think that on either side of the political equation, we have decided to embrace identity politics to a, to an amazing degree and I don't think that's a good thing I think we need to to bring civics back into this country even to the point of having adult education classes some kind of how I mean you can obviously now we're learning more about you know working from home and entertaining yourself at home you know so why not have classes on civics? Why not have, you know, things like that so that an adult that somehow managed to not learn how the government is supposed to work um, to the extent that it works at all is actually, you know, working. So let's get these people educated in civics. Let's, let's get what Thomas Jefferson wanted, which was a literate populace. And yes, I know he only really meant white men, but let's expand that definition, please. Let's, let's now expand the definition to, to everybody here that's a citizen, because I got news for you. I don't care who you vote for or what you believe, but the entire rest of the first world sees their citizens as things to invest in. And that is something we lack in this country. That is a thought process that we lack in this country. And we need to bring that back. Now, with that said, this man that I'm going to put on this podcast to the right of me on the timeline is a man named Dana Blankenhorn. And he has been covering uh, what we today think of as the new economy or this new technological situation for literally for decades. And he was on the front lines. Of, of this. Before the front line was even. Drawn. He says that he shows up early to the party. Has a few snacks and then moves on. And there's a lot of truth in that. And I think it's an interesting. And fascinating podcast. And it occurs to me. That the reason. That this is going to happen. In the rest of the world. And probably ideally, right now anyway, in a lot of the more uh, either middle middle class or affluent neighborhoods in this country is because of high-speed Internet access. And if we want high-speed Internet access to come down, so if we want our citizenry to be able to pull themselves up and to be able to engage properly in the, this new global economy where you can hold down a job in Hong Kong, and China, but you can live in Austin, Texas, or you can live in Waleska, Georgia, hey, there's a small town shout-out for you, then we're going to need to have high-speed internet access going everywhere, and we're going to need to have the healthcare, good quality healthcare, and good quality hospitals, because that's a given in the rest of the world, and the rest of the world is simply not going to want to provide Americans health coverage when they go off and work in the rest of the world. And I really think we need, to, we need to get with this program rather rapidly because, you know, we don't want to sink behind. And the other thing I, I really think we need to do beyond all this is I think we need to, to revamp our education system in this country to include things like logic and to include things like critical thinking in in terms of what we're seeing and what we're taking into this fire hose called the information superhighway, otherwise known as the internet. I really, really honestly believe that because most of the rest of the world could look at propaganda and could see it as propaganda And that's just something we can't do, apparently, in this country. And that's why a lot of us, or that's why a lot of people in the world, give Americans this reputation as being gullible and easily led. And when you're applying for a job in Hong Kong or Tokyo or Berlin or London, you're going to be having resumes with people who aren't thought of as easily led or susceptible to propaganda. Now let's think about that. Okay? Let's think about who are you going to hire as a, as a person as a hiring manager in another country? Are you going to hire somebody that you believe is easily led or is a little gullible or are you going to hire somebody that went to some crack university in China or some crack university in Japan or so on and so forth? Which leads me to another point that I need to make. We in this country all of a sudden have decided that deep thinking is not valuable. is not anything we need to cherish. And maybe that was because there's a lot of people who don't understand it. I honestly don't know. But I think we've gotten to the point where we've decided to dumb down the, the job requirements and the, and the job market of our own world for most people. And that's not, that's not good. That's not a good way to compete in the world of work in the rest of the world, people. So with all that said, I want to introduce Dana Blankenhorn. This man has been covering, as I've said, has been covering as a freelance journalist for most of his career, the, basically the information revolution in which we now find ourselves for many, many decades. He started actually in the 60s as a young man. And I had a fascinating conversation with him. And I want you to give this man your undivided attention, please. Take it away. Benjamin Kitchings to the History Voyager. And I'm here with
1: Dana Blankenhorn. And you have been a journalist in Atlanta, Georgia, Covering technology for how many years now?
2: Well, covering technology, uh, almost 38.
1: That's a long time. All right. Uh, now, tell me about the, um, how you got started. Or, I guess, before you got started, tell me about how you got interested in computers at all.
2: I guess, I... uh, that's a tough one because I, I, I've been thinking about that a lot myself. Um but I've always been anxious for them. Uh I've always been looking forward to them before they got here. Uh I remember back in um the late seventies when I first started at the Houston Business Trail. Uh I um my neighbor across the street bought a Cremenco. Do you remember those?
1: I do
2: not. Ah, that was, a, that was a CPM boat anchor box, S100 plus. Uh okay. It was one of many competitors uh, to Apple running the CPM operating system. And uh control program for microcomputers created by Digital Research Incorporated, Gary Kildall, CEO. Anyway, she got uh, a $20,000 machine that was probably – you know, it it was, may have been an IBM PC in terms of power. And she brought some bo- extra boards that acted as terminals so that other people could get similar machines for cheap. Uh, she could lease these to other people. And they were all transcribing uh, court reporting. So they would get recordings and they would transcribe them. You know, it's a kind of legal document today. And yeah. she was running a successful small business out of her house with computers in
1: 1979.
2: Okay. Uh, so that was pretty interesting. I, I I had been talking to professors about what competing would do to our profession when I was at uh, Northwestern. Uh, I, I took a year at the McGill School after graduating from Rice. And I, to, I told them that newspapers could be really successful if they stopped just selling billboards by the side of the road and started trying to earn commissions on the sales of their marketing partners. Um, yeah. Because you could a, – a, a newspaper salesman, a space salesman, and that salesman, could walk up to a car dealer, and he could show him that during the average day, 20,000 people drive by his place, and that if you buy our ad, buy a full-page ad in our paper, I can guarantee, practically guarantee you X number of additional sales from that ad, and he'd be right. Data has been around doing things in all these areas, we now think of as, wow, for many, many decades. You know, uh, back in the early 1970s, there was a guy named Richard Vidieri who used computers in politics to create these vast mailing lists of like-minded individuals. And that's exactly what Trump's doing. It, it, it just costs him less. So, there's not a lot that seems to be new here. Uh, and, uh, the one thing that changed, I want to jump ahead in time briefly. Okay. Is that in the early 90s, networks like CompuServe and Genie and The Source, uh, were the dominant means by which consumers went online. Because the internet was closed off, you had to get an invitation to go online, and so you'd pay an hourly rate to be online, and that brought in enough money for moderation. You have moderation moderators being paid to run the discussion threads. When there were no moderators, as on the Internet, people relied on something called netiquette, which is a term.
1: People relied on something called what? I'm sorry.
2: Netiquette. N E T I T Oh, netiquette.
1: Netiquette. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember netiquette. Yeah.
2: Right. And I believe Mike Godwin came up with the term, the idea being online etiquette, internet etiquette, being nice to each other.
1: Right,
2: And uh, this worked on Usenet, which was an Internet service, because anybody who was a pain in the ass in discussions could be kicked off quite easily. Right. But when the Internet as we know it, with the uh, World Wide Web, began developing in the mid-'90s, These hourly charges went away, and so did the money for content and moderation. Right. And so netiquette went right out the window. You know, I was on online conversations with trolls as early as 1988. It wasn't fun. You know, it's like (laughs) Johnny Python's Arguing Clinic. Right. Uh, they would contradict you just to contradict you. They had no facts to bring to the discussion. They were just trying to be trolls.
1: Yeah, and, they were. Yeah.
2: And I had to step away from uh, from participating in uh, political discussions during that campaign because
1: the eighty-eight. So they were okay.
2: This is eighty-eight. Let yeah. me.
1: Okay, they were already talking about uh, uh, Dukakis versus Bush in eighty-eight. That was the
2: race that, uh,
1: that evolved. On the Internet. Well, that's... Oh, yeah. On what we would... Now, okay. Is it what we would call the Internet today, or was it the yeah. Internet?
2: No, this was on CompuServe, which was an okay. five network.
1: All right. Now, why don't we... We... Why don't... Okay. Yeah. What is the difference between xi Five networks, which I think I know what that difference is, but I don't have nearly the command of it that you would. Uh, what's the difference between that and, say, HTTP in somewhere, or HTTPS in somewhere? Okay.
2: Well, the Internet runs on uh, something called the IP, the Internet Protocol, uh, which is uh, managed by uh, now, by a group called the Internet Society or the Internet Engineering Task Force, which sets rules by which communications networks will connect, uh, under the protocol. And, okay. X.25 okay. was a similar protocol, but it was actually an informal agreement among phone companies. The difference being that with twenty five, the money and where it would go. Those questions were explicit, and you had to agree to them up front.
1: Now, when you say – okay, hang on just just a second. When you say an agreement between phone companies, plural, I remember – I swear I remember when Ma Bell broke up. I I, I guess – wait, hang on. Let's use the real – okay. I remember when the AT&T monopoly was broken up. By Congress, I believe.
2: Um, no, it was actually by a court.
1: Okay, by a court.
2: Yeah.
1: Right. I remember when that happened. Right. I was a a very small child, relatively to, relative to the world. But I swear I remember that taking place because I remember the adults are yeah. I remember the adults in my life talking about it. Alright. Um, so when we're saying an agreement between the phone companies, is that what we mean or do we mean companies as in the world companies?
2: It was an interoperability agreement, uh, that was equivalent for data to, uh, existing agreements that had existed between long distance company MCI and the old AT&T for years. More companies were created in 1984 and they used this existing protocol uh, which pretty much mandated, you know, you get paid up front and who connects with who and under what rules with something that had to be agreed to up front by all the participants in the chain, the user through contract. And and actually everybody, everybody through contract. The difference between that and the internet protocol is that internet peering puts money last. You you connect, you make the connection, we'll worry about the money later. The reason for that is that IP, the internet protocol, was developed by the government in order to connect government researchers, and there was government money funding everything because it was a Cold War activity. And right. so nobody was worried about the money. Questions of money were not built into the Internet protocol. Once you peered, or once your network connected to an Internet network, you know, people would. Count how many bits were going back and forth, and at the end of the month, you would, or at the end of a period, you would pay based on the net number of bits that transferred. Wow! If you downloaded more, you pay. If you, you know, if your stuff was downloaded more, you wouldn't. Uh, And
1: did they charge for uploads? Do you remember, or is it just downloads still?
2: when I was on CompuServe, they just charged me a flat $6 an hour rate, which being a reporter, I didn't have to pay because I was a contributor to, uh, I was, I, you know, I, I was contributing content to them.
1: So, like, it was so early, they were just starved for content.
2: Yeah, it seems to be. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot Uh Nobody who was any of any size was interested. I mean, the person I was working for was a, a single woman out of San Francisco initially, and I joined at the same time as a friend of mine who was in Sheffield, England, and was commuting down to London, and it was a side gig for him. And it was kind of a side gig for me as well because you know, I was always looking – for freelance opportunities, uh, you know, right up until 94. Yeah. In addition to the work I was doing for NewsBytes.
1: So, okay, uh, let's, let me try to get a timeline on this. So from. Okay. So we're talking from 80 something to 94. From
2: 1985 to 1994. I was the Atlanta Bureau for News Byte's News Network, Uh, run by Wendy Woods out of San Francisco. Uh, This grew organically to 17 different bureaus around the world and was eventually sold uh, to the Washington Post and then Ah. disappeared eventually. It was sold to the Washington Post after the web was sprung, I think, around uh, the time, '96.
1: And by web, we mean the World Wide Web, right?
2: Right. The World Wide Web is really simply a protocol that sits on top of the Internet protocol and defines how pages are going to be described, how it translates between data, incoming and outgoing data, and offers a presentation layer.
1: Right, a GUI, as we say. Yeah. Okay. Yes.
2: And the most important part of that, GUI, yeah. was the hyperlink. Now, uh, yes. uh, you know, Tim Lee did not invent the hyperlink. The idea of the hyperlink really emerged from a man named Ted Nelson, who's still around, who defined it in the early 70s in uh, a couple of spectacular books uh, called, uh, the most important was Computer Lib. Uh, and I forget what the other one was, Something Machines. Okay. Yeah?
1: Okay. I'm here, yeah. I'm here. I'm just uh, absorbed. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> I'm, I'm he was absorbed. Actually,
2: Ted, Ted was actually uh, the son of uh, film uh, is the set of a film director and the Hollywood star Celeste Holm. I don't know if okay. you remember Celeste Holm. I ah. She was in All About Eve. She played the, the uh, name
1: rings a bell.
2: Right. She played the the wife of the playwright in All About Eve. And uh, I believe she was in high society as the photographer.
1: It's fascinating to me uh, so when try you, to <laughs> it's fascinating to me when you talk about when anybody talks about the internet like when any mm-hmm. when we try to historicize it as revolutionary as it is, you know we're still we're well within inside people's working lifetimes, even right now Yeah. yeah. um it's just people like the people you know. 30 years younger than me, right, don't really have an appreciation for how recent all this actually was. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know? I mean... Most people, even young people,
2: fail to appreciate and understand the underlying fact that is creating all of this rapid change in every direction, and that's Moore's Law. Moore's yeah. Law was, was a, a magazine article written by Gordon Moore, who later co-founded Intel, in 1965, explaining uh-huh. that the number of circuits on a piece of silicon could double every year as far as he could see every a year or two, as far out as he could see, without increasing the price of that circuit. So a circuit in 1965 that might deal with one bit, would deal with two, would deal with four, would deal with eight, would deal with 16, et cetera. Uh, and he said, by, by the late 70s, you'll be able to get 65,000 of these circuits, 64K of these circuits. <laughs> I, don't, I don't see that changing. And indeed, that was indeed the case. That, that has been the case. It continues to be the case.
1: And you talked um, when we talked before. You talked about Moore's law spreading out into the physical reality, even the physical world. Right. They call it the Internet of Things.
2: Right. Moore's law uh, impacts anything it touches, uh, and it, it impacts good uh, data storage. It impacts impacts data transmission. It impacts all sorts of computer computerized things, okay, and makes them accessible to software manipulation. And then beyond that, people then build applications that define and change their lives, the lives of industries, okay, and out and out now and out, or science. You can now answer questions much more rev- readily because the technology yeah. we have today for doing that is better than what we had 10 years ago, Ex- many times exponentially better. Now, if anybody right. wants to understand how exponential growth works, just look at the pandemic.
1: The exponential okay. curve, right.
2: Right, right. We've okay,
1: explain to my listeners... Growth- all right, so I had to relearn what the exponential curve was. So why don't we? Why don't you explain to my listeners roughly what the exponential curve is? Okay,
2: okay. Uh, two, two times two is four. Four by four, four times four is sixteen.
1: Sixteen, 16 times sixteen,
2: six, and so on. And so on. So you get up to. 64K, and then you multiply that by 2. Okay, now you're at 128K. Multiply that by 2. 256. Multiply that by 2. 512. Now, 40 years, 50 years later, you're getting into numbers of in the billions. You multiply that by
1: 2. And there are
2: technologies that do this in different realms.
1: And the reality
2: Oh, sure. and, the, and, and, and I the live, oh, sorry.
1: I'm sorry. The lived reality is that every every five every four or five years or so the average person in the road can can look at a new device and can or a new uh be it a computer, phone, whatever, and just see like, oh this is substantially better than something that was two years earlier. Exactly. Or four years earlier. Right.
2: Exactly. And the same thing is true for data Now, A few years ago, when the phone companies were talking about uh, limiting the amount of bandwidth that they would sell you, throttling the amount of bandwidth that they would sell you, they were talking about it in terms of uh, a few billion bits. Now, Comcast is now trying to do data throttling, and people are all upset about it, okay, on your cable Internet. But it's at a level of 1.2 terabits. That's billions of bits, trillions of bits. Yeah. And in billions of bits, you can watch a whole lot of television. <laughs> a whole lot. <laughs> a whole lot of television. And the idea of having to um, save something kind of goes away when you can just... You know, watch it. So the idea of storing things on media, like a CD or a DVD, goes away. It's replaced by streaming. Why? Because we've got so much more digital bandwidth available.
1: So you think, I mean, you think at the end of the day, this, this is why we've gotten away from DVDs, or, or largely gotten away from DVDs or whatever, right. what have you. We okay,
2: We don't need them. We don't need DVDs because we can watch the show uh, on on our cable internet without having a DVD.
1: Well, the thing. Okay, so I'm going to push back a little bit, and I'm going to use the DVD as a stupid example, and I I admit that it's a dumb example, but bear with me. Um, so the thing I've noticed about streaming, and this gets back to, you know, we we seem to have. Decided that Google is the purveyor of news, right? It is your purveyor of not just news, but knowledge, right? So the thing about streaming is that if you're interested in something that, that no streaming service has, if you don't have it on DVD, like you, you, you're, you're out of luck. Well, the same thing that I've noticed with uh, Google in terms of their knowledge, I mean, you know, I Googled – I actually got into an argument with people because Google chose to basically use a – essentially a wrong definition of of a term, okay, that Google then says, this is the definition of this term. And I'm like, no, if you ask any expert in the field, that's not what that is. So you see – it's like – so streaming is a good thing and all this, you know – this knowledge in the cloud is a good thing but it's also letting these companies curate our knowledge if you know what I'm saying
2: well Google doesn't really own what it's selling you understand there's a difference between the data the the movie Remember the Titans and the metadata the metadata which says you'll find the file Remember the Titans this is right what Google right. is offering in its search is metadata Not data, right metadata. they don't own the data,
1: so that's not okay
2: they don't own the news
1: well, I'm not saying they're they're well okay I'm not saying they're they're doing the news per se, but they are doing knowledge, and I don't know if it's I'm not saying it's even purposeful I'm saying somebody somewhere misunderstood a definition, decided that was Google's definition for something, or somehow that works. Right? I'm not entirely sure how that worked. But, I mean, I could go to books written by experts in the field, and that's not the definition that they use.
2: Right? What probably happened is that the the software... Upon this answer from this person and put into the metadata, this is the answer to that question. Okay? Probably. Right. And so when you ask that question, the metadata links you to that answer.
0: But Google doesn't
2: control any data, that's on somebody else's computer. All Google is offering is metadata, data about data. For instance, this, um right now, there's a European rule, which I find really offensive, called the right to be forgotten. And the idea okay. is that if somebody was in the media about doing something in the past and was charged perhaps with a crime and then later wasn't convicted, People shouldn't be able to find that easy. So Google should edit its meta- metadata so that that can't be found through Google. Okay. It's not erasing file. The file what still why, there.
0: Why
1: do you find that offensive? I'm just curious.
2: I find the idea of a so-called right to be forgotten as incredibly open to abuse. It basically means that uh, any crook can try... To change their history and pretend that the bad thing they did didn't happen.
1: Well, right. Well, yeah. That's that's, that's one. Happened. That's one aspect of it. Yeah.
2: When that's what, when that is something that happened.
1: Um, yes, you're right.
2: Also, it, it puts an immense uh, burden on Google to edit its metadata constantly. You're getting billions of court orders, and they have to be dealt with in some way shape or fashion they don't want to have people do anything they want software to do stuff okay that's the key to understanding the business models of big software companies turn what people do into something that software does and you can make a okay. search. that's what Google initially did they realized that search was the most important function. And so they did everything necessary to become the leaders in search. Even while Wall Street was telling other companies that no, you don't need to be the lead. Search is such a small thing. You need to be the leader in content. So Yahoo bought all these content farms.
1: And that didn't work out so well, did it?
2: And they took their eye off the ball. <laughs> all, all the other search engines took their eye off the ball. They they focused on the content rather than how do you find content, the finding of it. Automate that. Automate that instantaneously. Right. And then you can build a business over just having little tiny box ads next to the service that you're providing. And
1: that's that's what Google does. Yeah. Okay. You said something that I want to push back on just a bit. Oh, go ahead. You said said that, um, that, and I agree with you, that you can't abuse the right to be forgotten by you being a crook or you being a dishonest politician or or whatever, and you want this little story to be forgotten or that little this. Okay, fine. And I agree with that, right? That's. That's an abuse. But what about the person, the kid, right, that does something that then 20 years later or 10 years later or 15 years later, they, they nobody would want on the Internet, right? Like, you know what I'm saying? Because it strikes me that one of the things that's going to happen, in fact, it already is happening, it strikes me that one of the things that's happening now is that you're expecting children and very immature people to to be very mature, um, sober minded adults at the age of twelve? And yeah, 13. I think
2: society needs to. In, in terms of that, society just needs to get over itself, understand Whoa. the kids, and just kind of just in in, in a societal. Yeah. Uh, Way you know, and I understand the kids get to pass. R- well,
1: and not only yeah. I mean, well, there's a there's a comedian that I love. His name is Dave Chappelle, and he has a whole bit called "How." All I'm asking is, how old 15 is really, right? And I think in some ways, like not just 15, but 20 or 22, or you, you know, like when do you start? caring what somebody thought about a given topic, whatever that given topic is, you see what I'm saying, like like I've studied I, history for you. I've studied history. 17, man. I'm sorry, say again
2: now seventeen
1: uh, right, right, now, I agree with it. and that's something I agree with. I agree with where you're going there that's something you do like right.
2: that. you, do shit. you do shit you know i, I I'm not gonna. Uh, get after somebody over something they they said when they were 17. And I don't think you should either. Um, Right. I don't think anybody else should. And, in fact, what's going to be happening as we go through time is that people without a record are going to be suspicious. Where do you come from?
1: Yeah. That actually happens. Google,
2: that's a problem.
1: That actually happened to a friend of mine. Well, that, not that, but, uh, something around that sort of situation happened to a friend of mine. Mm-hmm. Where, um, people started wondering this other person they were dealing with, why can't we find this person on, online? And that was a big mystery. <laughs> you know, that was a big, big mystery. Mm-hmm. But, um, I don't know, it just, I see what you're saying that you can abuse the right to be forgotten for crooks and for politicians and for powerful people or even like adults or whatever. But it also kind of just – the other way, talking about the other way, you're depending on people to be rational actors. You know, you're always depending on somebody to be a rational actor and i guess i I guess I've studied history enough to know that you can't depend on people to be rational
2: it, it comes back, it always comes back to what Mike Goblin was saying thirty years ago Connecticuttiquette okay. is something that needs to be taught in the schools from a very early age, just as you teach Joey not to pull Betty's hair, okay, and teach Betty not to spread nasty rumors about Judy in the hallway. We have to do the same thing with kids when it comes to online behavior. Yeah. This is something that's missing in our education system. And it's something we had in the years before the web was spun, because the early business models allowed it, later well, business models don't allow it, and we've completely forgotten
0: about. It. Right,
1: and I think well, and this gets into a, a wider. I mean, this really gets into a fascinating, uh, a wider talk about why have our morals in society. I don't know if you want to use the word change or degraded or or whatever, whatever words you choose to use. Right. But, you know, an adult would, you know, any adult of any certain age would have to tell you that our, our, our moral or, you know, our values have changed in society. However you choose to look at that. Um, But, I really wanted to talk to you... We had talked before about some of the wider implications of, like, Moore's Law and some of the technology coming down the road that you saw, like, way, way back in the time. Like, mm-hmm. way, way back in the time. Um, Could you... Could you tell me about some... So, okay, Moore's Law is this idea that, I think it's every 18 months, computing power doubles. Yeah.
2: Uh,
1: um. And you had said it's a Morris
2: Law article. It's it's now uh, hosted at the Intel site.
1: Right. Well, you told me some story about how you like back in the back in the way back time you had you you looked this and you were like, oh, well, we'll have this and that and the other right. thing by this by these years. Would you mind refreshing right. that story? Or?
2: <laughs> well, you know, I I just saw that, that, that Morris Law was going to keep on going, and it was going to go into other devices. It was going to... Uh, I, I read a, um, started writing a book, and I've actually rewritten it twice now. Uh, the original title was Moore's Law, L-O-R-E, Stories of Moore's Law. Um, and I posited things like uh, Moore's Law of Bandwidth that you had a fiber line, okay, and a fiber line could turn up light on and off and be dete- and have that be detectable, 550 million times a second, with advanced diodes in 1997. So Enron, which had already made markets in uh, all sorts of energy areas, decided that they would try and make a market in bandwidth under a former army our Air Force General named Thomas Wright. They created a market for bandwidth. But they did not understand the concept of colors. You can turn a light on and off 550 million times, and that can be what you send through one wire. Or you can use red and yellow and green and blue and multiply it. And you can use ultraviolet and infrared and multiply it many, many times, and all you have to do to make that multiplication happen is change the diodes on either end of the line right This is called wide division multiplexing, and you're uh, multiplexing the channel. you're multiplexing the data going through the line in terms of light data going through the line, just as you would multiply, as you had been, multiplying the amount of data or concentrating the data, going through a, a electrical line, data line, 15 years before. Multiplexing is not new.
1: Let me ask and you this.
2: Well, it's right then, that now, instead of sending half a million
1: bits
2: through a, a single fiber cable you could spend send four times, eight times, sixteen times, twenty times, thirty times as much. And so Enron found that anybody could get around their marketplace.
1: Right. Let me ask you this because let me ask you this, because it just hit me like a two by four who I'm talking to. Okay. Um, okay. You know, and I know, because I studied it in college. I mean, I remember when it happened. I remember when the Enron story hit, yeah. that the, that this huge company was running a scam, basically. Um, what, as a working journalist, did you ever sit around and, and look at what Enron said it was doing and, and think or say, now, wait a minute here. <laughs> That's not real.
2: Oh, <laughs> well, yeah. You know, I wrote in my book that, that Enron thought it was trying to corner the market on kittens. Because they <laughs> had two cats. Well, we have two cats. Well, each one of these cats is worth $100, so they're going to have a litter of kittens, and that's worth $800 more. They can have three litter of kittens every year. and Oh, we're, we're going to control the market. We're going to have all the kittens.
1: Yeah. Because you know, everybody,
2: else, everybody else can
1: have kittens, too. Yeah, yeah. I gotta, t- I gotta tell you, that's a, that's a fascinating story. Just, just the, just how Enron's scam of what it was doing, just came out to light, the way it came out to light. It's just a whole fascinating story. It,
2: it came to light, I think, because it failed in the bandwidth market. It was actually working in terms of things like natural gas and oil uh, and electricity. It was working,
1: okay? Right.
2: They were driving up the price and controlling the market. But you can't drive up the price and control the market for Internet bandwidth because Internet bandwidth is abundant. It runs on a different kind of economics. You couldn't
1: actually sell it, yeah.
2: That's that's the big change that's actually occurred uh, in our time. We've gone from an economics of scarcity, which is defined by controlling something that is rare, okay, to an economics of abundance, where everything is abundant. And that's something that we still haven't, most of us, gotten our heads around.
1: Can you talk about that in terms of lived experience? Like, how might we be living in an economics of abundance and not realize it?
2: Well, oil. Yeah. The the, the OPEC cartel, they control energy. Well, they don't. They control a commodity that you can burn to create energy. They don't control energy. On the other hand, we have now, over the last 10 years, doubled and doubled and doubled and doubled the efficiency and supply of wind and solar energy, so that now today it's cheaper than oil, cheaper even than natural gas when uh you factor in the cost of building the plant in a couple of years it'll be cheaper than natural gas even without factoring in the cost of the plant that that's the economics of abundance. You can create abundance and change the economic rules.
1: Change the paradigm, basically. You, and, you literally,
2: you can, it, you can do it really, really quickly.
1: There, I, I'm forgetting the. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the guy that I'm forgetting who this was. But there was a story about where the whole electronic electric car world was was focused up on how how to get a car from coast to coast, right? How do I get an electric car from coast to coast? Right. And everybody was thinking, well, that's a huge problem. And then there was one guy, and I don't remember, I wish I could remember the guy's name. There was one guy that remarkably recently hit on, remembered, I I, want to say hit on the idea, but really he remembered, right? He remembered, wait a minute, most people never go from coast to coast in a car all you really have to do is get this car around a a major metro. (laughs) So he shrank the problem.
2: The electric car revolution, is said to have begun with Elon Musk, but I think it also really began with Elon Musk's understanding of how the energy market could change, his understanding of this economics of abundance, which is that... A uh, hundred years ago, 110 years ago, you had almost as many electric cars as you had gas-powered cars. Electric cars have always been simpler machines than gas-powered machines. Gas-powered machines have an awful lot of moving parts that can go back. Electric cars have very few parts that can go back. The problem was that 110 years ago, electric utilities were not scaled to provide the power necessary to run a whole lot of electric cars. So the cost of the electricity needed to run an electric car was very high, and the cost of building the infrastructure to sell the electricity would have been ruinous. Now, what Musk realized with the solar revolution, I mean, he's he's been trying to sell solar panels for several years now. He just doesn't know that market very well. But what he realized was that as efficiency, like LED light bulbs instead of uh, uh, the old kind, and um, better engines, better motors, more efficiency in refrigerators, more efficiency in factories, as efficiency in solar and wind power increased, electric utilities would be needing a market. And electric cars could supply that market. If it weren't for electric cars right now, the demand for electricity would be going down. That's because computer chips are incredibly efficient and getting more so. The cloud is not only a very efficient uh, user. Everybody talks about, oh, they make a lot of heat. Yeah, they do, because they got a lot of computers in there. Not only is it a very efficient supplier of compute power, but they can reuse their waste energy, the heat that these things give off, for other things. Here outside yeah. Atlanta, outside Atlanta, in Douglasville, Google has a plant. They have a cloud data center. And the excess heat is recycled in order to help run the water system and filter the water. Okay? <laughs> you, can you can harvest energy. You don't have to create energy by burning stuff. You can harvest the energy that's already there. This, this is something I wrote on, on, on my blog as an introduction over oh, a decade ago now. And you can still see it www.danielblackhorn.com. The sun shines, the wind blows, the tides roll, and we live on a molten rock. There is no energy shortage. There never was.
1: All you have to do is learn how to learn how to tap it.
2: All you have to do is harvest it, and there are many, many different ways to harvest it. Then she said thinking in terms of harvesting. You know, there is, uh, there's a you can build little wind turbines in between the lanes of traffic between the lanes going this way and the lanes going that way, and they will turn with the traffic, and they will harvest energy.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: So think in terms right. of harvesting rather than in terms of creating. And so Elon Musk saw this change. Okay. He saw this change coming, and so he created an electric car in order to take advantage of it. Now, the first ones that he built, he deliberately built as high-performance, high-end cars, so he could get half-dollar for but that they would perform exceedingly well, and they did. Then you scale up production that you did for a computer chip, you scale up production. And he make more and more and more of them. So the price for making them gets lower and lower and lower.
1: I think also, like, he realized, he must have realized that the way to get this battery-operated car known about was to make it a high-end car. Like, you're never going to get a battery-operated car known about as a mid-range or a low-end car. You have too much bad PR to to overcome that way.
2: Well, no, no, those markets are too big. You don't go after big markets at first. This is the way that uh, all markets kind of work. You know, it starts with hobbyists and enthusiasts, okay, and then it goes to advocates. And then at some point it jumps from that small segment of the market through the mass market, and then at the end it becomes a replacement market. Okay, and that's the demand curve. That's the way the demand curve works for just about everything that I know of. That's the way it worked for radio in the 1920s. That's the way it worked for TV
1: in the 1950s. The way it works for phones now, smartphones now. The way,
2: the way it works for phones in our time. But yeah. now we're in a replacement market. Now, when you're in the early stages of the market, okay, when you're dealing with the enthusiasts, the early adopters, you can build in a high price. You want to go to half dollar. You want to maximize your unit profit. When you're at the end of the market, on the tail end of the market, but everybody's yeah. got it, then you go for the low price. You price yourself below the market, okay, because you're trying to get people to replace with your stuff. I, I went yeah. to a, a, a conference, a business conference 20 years ago, well, right, actually, 21 years ago, just as we were hitting the year 2000. And, and they talked about that. Because at the time, I was an expert on Internet commerce. <laughs> That's the fun thing about being a tech reporter. I have changed hats and changed beats more times than I care to count.
1: And so, like, what was again, the okay. – I an
2: expert on a lot of stuff that I didn't know that much about.
1: Where were you wrong? Let me ask you that. Where were you wrong with with all this future? Where did you think the future was going to go? That it hasn't gone there yet.
2: Well, I, I didn't realize how stupid newspaper people were. I, I, I really didn't realize that uh, uh, at, at first that new things aren't usually created by old companies
1: that
2: uh, old companies will protect their paradigm. And it's really, really hard for a company to last in leadership for very long because the next generation of it, a new paradigm emerges. That company is going to protect its old paradigm and it's going to fail. I think I was fooled in this by the fact that there were some companies that did choose to survive for decades upon decades by uh, because they were smart about always bringing in or bringing through new leaders who understood the new paradigm, right? specifically General Electric and IBM. Right. So when IBM was starting to fail in the mid-1990s, they turned to Lou Gerstner, who created a service model to the company. Instead of selling boxes, we would sell services. We would write your software, solve your problem. And that was their model going into the internet period. General Electric went through generation upon generation for over a century. Every new CEO would last for like 15 or 20 years. He would have complete power to bind and loose and control things. He would completely change what the company was about. And it would succeed with his new vision. And then he would choose his successor. And then that person would have a completely different
1: vision because it
2: would be new. And it worked for a long time until Jeff Jackal showed up.
1: <laughs> Why didn't it work with him?
2: He's an
1: idiot. <laughs> okay, can you can you tell me how he was an idiot? Uh, tell me what he did, what he thought he was going to do, that didn't work. That makes you think he's an idiot. Well,
2: he tried to do two things that are kind of mutually exclusive. One thing was to control the energy market by creating more energy and selling machines that created a lot of energy. And the other thing was to try and control the efficiency market. Energy efficiency. He tried to do both at the same time.
1: And that and, just doesn't uh, sound that doesn't sound like a plan. I mean, even as you say it, it doesn't sound like a plan.
2: No, but that was his plan from the beginning. And he slowly yeah. wasted away all of the great assets that Jack Welch had created. He wasted away the entertainment networks. And he wasted away the finance company. You know, in 2008, General Electric Finance was so big, it was considered uh, you know systemically vital. They, they had to be part of the bailout, even though they didn't need the money.
1: Too big to fail. I remember
2: they that. Were too big to fail. Well, <laughs> necessarily, you know what, what does that mean in today's context of banking, thanks for right. the internet and, and banking becoming software and everything being an app.
1: Okay, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> uh, mean anything anymore. No, I, I know, I know. And you talked before about you gave me that phenomenal stat about how Microsoft. About how Facebook and what was it like, Microsoft, Facebook, and. Somewhere oh, the like cloud that.
2: Ones. The companies that jumped on the cloud early, a decade ago, starting with Google first, Amazon second, Facebook third, Microsoft fourth, Apple fifth, the companies that jumped on the cloud and built these cloud data centers are now worth about $7 trillion.
1: And you juxtapose that by how much the whole banking system is worth,
2: well, which is like I, yeah, I agree I wrote I, I a story I think uh, last week for Investor Place in which I calculated that Facebook alone is worth more than General Electric, Intel, AT and so... on IBM, and I think Slack, uh, combined, oh and on throw them in there. It's worth more than all of them combined.
1: Now tell okay. Now please tell my, my listeners, in reality, what is Facebook it's a it's a what is Facebook in reality?
2: It's actually the world's first free phone company.
1: Okay. You talk about 3D and, app
2: and anything like, is anything can be defined now as a phone call. The phone call itself, this phone call it's a very low bandwidth internet activity. Anything that can become an internet activity, I'm calling a phone call. Whether that's voice, whether that's data, whether that's charts, whether that's gaming, whether that's video, it's all basically a phone call. Facebook created a model, thanks to its uh cloud disks, that allow it to give this away. Simply for the advertising needed to uh, sell ads, give it away. A you know a a small farmer in India, who makes about five hundred dollars, the equivalent of five hundred dollars a year, can now be part of the global market because he can afford to acquire a cell phone, or at least share a cell phone. He can afford internet bandwidth through a local mobile wireless company. They can afford Facebook because it's free. And his kid, sitting in this whatever hut, now has the ability not only to learn, but to interact and to advance that technology. And this is true for billions of people. And it wasn't yeah. true 15 years ago, they would not. these people could not reach the Internet. They couldn't reach the world discussion. They weren't part of the global marketplace when Facebook was founded. Thanks to the cloud, they are. And thanks to free services from Google and Facebook, they are. You see, Microsoft and Apple aren't being attacked so much by the trustbusters today because they charge people for what they do. Amazon yeah. is, sort, is sort of under attack, but it, it's not that big a deal to them. They're going after Google and Facebook. They're going after the free internet. That's what they're doing. They're going after the developing world and trying to stuff it back in the bottle. And they're doing it without even knowing that's what they're doing.
1: Why? Okay, now you just brought up a good point that I hadn't even thought of. Why are, Why do you suppose they're, they're letting uh, they're going after the free stuff and the regulators, and not the the pay stuff. Like, why uh, Why do you... Because, that, because that's the stuff
2: that has become difficult to police. Right. That's why.
1: Yeah.
2: You can't police free discussion because there's no business model that will allow it to be moderated.
1: Right. But, you, I mean...
2: You, it's all software. If you start trying to put people in it, You start putting costs in it, and eventually you destroy the business model. Uh,
1: So you you see it as the regulators just want to destroy the business model or not? I
2: I think they're addressing – they're trying to address the problem I mentioned earlier with netiquette. They're trying to impose their own version of netiquette. And what you see is netiquette differs everywhere. The First Amendment is a local ordinance. Okay. What what Erdogan in <laughs> Turkey, what Modi in India, what Putin in Russia, what Xi Jinping in China consider netiquette, consider legal or illegal discussion or pictures right. or coverage differs. Right. And what Facebook has been trying to say is, well, we'll deal with whatever the rules are where the rules are. We'll try and negotiate a regulated settlement so that we can stay in business.
1: But the thing about that is, I mean, so because I have a podcast, um, I kind of got off the – well, I did. Because I have a podcast, I got off the garden wall of – or the garden – I got out of the world, the garden of, you know, what most people experience it as Facebook. Or what most people, at least in America, experience as Facebook, Right. And the thing that that I see is really, really, you're right. There's an app. There's a the Facebook Messenger app. is an amazingly powerful app for communication where I can talk to a woman in Singapore or I can talk to a man in, in Alberta. It's mm-hmm. just crazy. Mm-hmm. So but you're right. A,
2: but there's a government in Singapore, and the government wants to control what that woman says. And if she says something on her podcast that the government of Singapore says shouldn't be said, they're going to try and go after you. So nations are trying to extend their reach internationally through the Internet, and corporations are trying to extend their marketing internationally through the Internet. And it's a big problem. It, it is. It has become a huge problem because, as I said, the First Amendment – is a local ordinance. Like, just a minute ago, I said something nasty about uh, President Modi in India. Maybe (laughs) somebody in uh, Bangalore is listening to this right now and is saying, geez, I don't like President Modi either. Now, a lot of people don't like President Modi. President Modi is not going to be happy about that, is he? No. President Modi has certain boundaries what can be discussed and what can be said about those things. Right. Those boundaries are different from the boundaries we have here.
1: And the thing that I... How
2: does a company provide service to both places?
1: The thing that I've noticed is I guess you start setting up walls or whatever, but then again, I mean, the thing I've noticed is like as I talk to people all over the planet, the thing I've noticed is how little walls start to matter. Maybe it's just my my little mind or my little corner of the world, or or you know these little interactions I'm having with people. But the thing I am personally noticing is the like that we're all people. You know, we, we might have cultural differences or religious differences or whatever, right? But we all basically kind of want the same stuff,
2: <laughs> you know. Like, that, that's that's what I noticed 31 years ago when I snagged myself onto uh, a trip to Japan that was sponsored by a group called the Electronic Networking Association. And it was a bunch of very ambitious and idealistic, free-thinking people uh, who believed in medicaid and mostly used a tool called Participate on Unix-based machines for their discussion. And they were trying to spread the idea of uh, world peace through discussion, you know, around the world. And Japan was listening. So they sponsored and and gave us money and vetted us and and, uh, treated us royally in Sendai, Japan, uh, for I think four days, four or five days. And we thought, boy, you know, this thing's really going to take off. But when it did take off, it took off without etiquette. It took off without that common agreement of being nice to other people. That's an agreement you have with the people you're talking to. You're nice to them. They're nice to you. Everything seems great. But not everybody wants to be nice. Right. People's definition of nice differs. So who You're, controls? Who defines? Right. What's nice? What's not nice? I mean, the people over at Parlour have a different version of what is nice than than people who, you know, subscribe been, to uh, other to Daily Coasts.
1: The people think. who are not at faith, than people who are not on Parlor. I mean a friend they're of mine not, a friend of mine not. Said that he wants to go back to the world where, you know, before he He says I want to go back to 2010 or 2009. I forget what. But like where everybody's talking to everybody, but we're all talking to everybody about fun stuff, right? And and my thought was, well, the difference is people grew up. Like the difference is all these Facebook users and all these Twitter users and whoever else grew up, and we had we had now quote unquote grown up thoughts or. Grown-up ideologies, grown-up this or that, right? <laughs> you know, right. But
2: I and mean, it's not just you know if you if you're going to be free, you need yeah. ordered liberty. Libertarianism, to do what you want, is a joke because what I want may interfere with what you want, and then somebody has to decide ordered liberty. That's what the founders were talking about. A system of laws that maximize the liberty of everybody. A system of rules that operate the way netiquette does. Don't shout fire in a crowded theater. Right. You know? And that's what we're having to suddenly do on a global scale. Now, who do I trust more to do that? Do I trust... Prime Minister Erdogan of Turkey to do that? Do I trust Vladimir Putin to do that? Do I trust Donald Trump to do that? No. I can trust probably Facebook more than any of those dudes. Right? Because they're trying to maximize the market. And that's all they care about. At the end of the
1: day, I mean... At the end of the day, you're talking about how newspapers in an old paradigm or whatever. At the end of the day, is it possible to see maybe a nation state in an old paradigm? Or is that just, am I just thinking? I think, I I think one of
2: the, I think the nation state
1: uh, is going to go away. It has to. I agree
2: with you. The only way we can address the problems that threaten human life on this planet uh, it is it's through cooperation. It's it's the same problem, and, and this pandemic is the first example of that.
1: Well, you it wasn't the, it, it, wasn't, the it well,
2: wasn't the first example. it it's the first it's the first event where it, it happened to everybody all at once.
1: Right. Well, I don't know if you've seen the movie Chernobyl or mm. the show. Chernobyl, it's it's, it's a, a mini series, uh, Chernobyl, but it was made pre-COVID, like the mini series was made pre-COVID, but I would imagine I didn't see it pre-COVID. I saw it post-COVID, um, but I would imagine it, it it sits differently with people that saw it before COVID than after COVID, because what it what it showed me was that. You know, your your little nation-state ideology or whatever can rock along just fine until it hits up against a disaster, right? <laughs> uh, right? You know what I'm saying? And I don't know, man.
2: And people were dealing with that even before, Chernobyl. know, the, the movie uh, The China Syndrome. It's from the 70s. Yeah. Pat Levin, Jane Fonda,
1: Michael
2: Kennedy, The China Syndrome.
1: I keep meaning to see that.
2: It was it was uh, kind of based on uh, on what could have happened, and and what threatened to happen at Three Mile Island, and came out about the same time. So it was a that made it a big hit movie, and since Douglas was producing it, it made him a very welcome man. <laughs> it, as a matter of fact, it it made him uh a, a, he had a choice after that he could either be, become a, a a famous actor or he could. Uh, become a famous producer, and he chose to become a famous actor, <laughs> which is kind of stupid. but well, he did it. That's just true. I mean, I could, have, I could have been, you know, a big deal on the Internet. I could have been a big deal in PC. I could have been a big deal in, in electronic journalism had I chosen to become a publisher in 1983. But I didn't because I wanted to write a story. <laughs>
1: See, but I wouldn't have found you on Twitter if you'd have been a publicist.
2: And now, you know, 37 <laughs> years later, uh, the only reason I'm financially comfortable is because I have a, a wife who, well, I listened to um, what my first journalism teacher told uh, in 1977. And I sat in my first class at Northwestern University, the Medill School. Big old building since torn down and replaced by a school of Journalism and marketing communication. Anyway, George Heights was his name, and he said, uh, first of all, uh, run to the front. You're witnesses. You're not the you're not the audience, you're witnesses. You run to the front. When you have an opportunity, you go to the front. You don't sit in the back. That's what students sit. You sit in the front. Second, most important. If you wanna have a good living, find a spouse with a good job.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: So I ran back, uh, I almost ran back to the apartment where I was living with uh, my girlfriend, and uh, I I proposed (laughs) immediately and said, you need to get on good terms with your dad and finish your education so you can get a good job. And she did. Okay. And she went to work, uh, around the time we got this house, for a little company called National Data. Uh, Oh, I know
1: about about this, yeah.
2: They're in the business of transaction processing Visa transaction, MasterCard (laughs) transactions. And she said, I like my job because my software makes money. Operating systems don't make money. My software makes money. And she was right, it made money. It made like a couple of pennies each time it ran, her program ran, but, you know, pennies add up. Um, well, now, I would. Thanks to leadership, that company, the descendants of that company, is now in the Fortune 500.
1: I would imagine that there was a moment in your lifetime where. Because wow. I, I kind of remember it, where credit cards became a lot more common. Mm-hmm. So I would imagine some company like National Data went from something there's something in another order around that time.
2: Yeah, and it was kind of sad because the guy who was running national data in the 1990s, a guy named Whitney, he passed away last year, at uh, a ripe old age, um, he thought that the big money was going to be in doing health transactions. Oh. <laughs> so, so he kept the NDC name – uh, right, on a successor company that disappeared under the waves and spun out the transaction processing into a new company that he called Global Payments, or they called the Global payment. I don't think Whitwick was, was necessarily CEO by that time, but they, I think Eloise was, but they spun out the transaction processing as Global Payments. And through a clever collection of growth and mergers, You know, they now own a a lot of the market. And uh, even though my wife is still bottom of the totem pole, she doesn't manage anybody. She's on the technical track. And her primary language is English. Um, She's worth a ton of money. Oh, God, she's worth a lot of money. Okay. (laughs) Okay. And
1: she's worth a lot of money to me, too. All right. So I've got a question. It's a question for you. Do you want to have a separate conversation about where you think technology is going, or do you want to go into that right now? Yeah, let's
2: let's go
1: for it. Okay. So tell me, okay, so where do we sit right now in 2020 today? Uh We have remarkable phones and computers that I can talk to anybody in the world and do on a regular basis. In fact, I cracked a joke with you that I have this remarkable piece of software that I can talk to somebody in Singapore or Australia or New Zealand, but I can't talk to somebody up the road. It's just mm-hmm. hilarious. <laughs> it's so funny to me. Uh, so tell me where you think technology is going in five or ten years. There are three trends, and I,
2: de- I identified this on my personal blog, uh a year ago uh, after I uh, went to the uh, Heidelberg Laureate Conference uh, in Germany. First is the end of the world. That's already in process. <laughs> that's That's actually further along than I thought it would be.
1: That's further that along than on. a lot of people thought it would be.
2: Yeah. I you know. It it happened. All of the changes that we're talking about, by the way, were greatly accelerated by the pandemic. Because it made them necessary. It turned them from, eh, I think I want to do that someday to I better do that right now. So yep. first so first is the end of oil. Uh second of all, second is the machine internet. Any machine, okay. any device can be connected through wireless sensors and moats, uh, directly to the Internet and controlled remotely or locally or a combination of the two to maximize efficiency. I started writing about this in the early in the 2000s. I called it the world of always-on technology. I even spoke about it at uh, Stanford uh, one time in 2004. And... Uh, Nobody heard because the other speaker in another room was David Brin, besides Sean. But be that <laughs> as it may. The third thing is DNA is a programming language. And we're seeing that play out with the vaccine. The vaccines yeah. are based on a new technology, relatively new, and, you know, building for some years, messenger RNA. Instead of trying to recreate the virus and then, and then evolve quickly a dumbed down version of the virus in order to, uh, deal with the virus, what you do is you put in little codes, just the messenger RNA, that will tell the body how to beat it. Messenger yeah. RNA up to as kind of a assistant analyst between the the business people in this case you and the uh and the programmers in this case DNA. Okay. So you engineer a relatively small molecule, okay, that will enable the body to fight infection from the spikes of the coronavirus. It, there are these little chemical t looking in, in, in a coronavirus, and this basically covers about 95%
1: effective.
2: Designed within a day
1: That's amazing. by two separate
2: companies. Designed within a day by two separate companies, different solutions to the same problem, pretty equivalent solution, a small company called BioNTech in Germany that was run by a Turkish immigrant, and this other company built out of Harvard called Moderna, which had just gone public in December. Oh, by the way, I I said you should buy that idea.
1: (laughs) And the German company, too.
2: Well, not not only a German company, but a German company was run by Turkish immigrants, yeah run by immigrants if you're going to build a business in today's era, if you're going to build a business built on software, if you're going to have excellence, if you're going to win, you have to get tech you have to get people really brilliant people wherever you can find them. And it doesn't matter what sex they are. It doesn't matter how they pray to God. It doesn't matter who they love. It doesn't matter if they can move a muscle. It could be Stephen Hawking. That's the dating factor to economic growth today. That's yeah. what you need in order to invent the future. And rejecting that, which is what we've been doing for four years, Um, Well, it's the greatest crime against humanity I can believe because it basically lets China have the play.
1: Yeah. Right. But I mean, if you think about it, because here's something I've been thinking. I mean, I've been thinking about this for years. I was thinking about this before the pandemic, okay, way before the pandemic. I I was working, I was uh, in school and in college. And I was working with these, uh, studies, which were showing, at least to my eyes, they were showing a, a widening gulf in society, in American society. And it wasn't money, okay, it wasn't money per se. It was, it, it was, um cognition. Or, or more likely what you do with that cognition. Right? And I was thinking, well, this is going to cause a breakdown in the country. This is literally going to cause the nation state to stop, right? But it wasn't until the pandemic hit, it wasn't even until, like, two months into the pandemic that it actually occurred to me how that would happen, like, how that would be allowed to happen through all this technology, through all this, you know, rapid technology, rapid communication and so on. You know. But um I don't know, I, I just think we're we're sitting at this precipice and that's one of the reasons I wanted to interview you is because you've been talk you've been thinking on this for years with this technology, you know? Yeah,
2: for decades. I've been I, I've always been anxious for the future to get here. And I go to the party of the future and nobody's there yet. Because that hasn't happened, and by the time people show up, I'm <laughs> um, looking for another party. And that's part of being a reporter, really. though. That, that's kind of a reporter's mindset.
1: I would imagine. I, I would imagine because I, I was a reporter. Once a
2: story that becomes commonplace, the real reporter is off of another story.
1: I mean, I would imagine because I've been a reporter at a small paper. So I would imagine, but reporters. Happen upon the future sooner. <laughs> you know at least the good ones. Happen upon the future sooner than other people. You know?
2: Yeah. And and, and it's not it's not something that is necessarily a good thing. Back in nineteen eighty six there was this movie called Broadcast News. Uh oh, William Hunt Polly Hunter. Mm-hmm. Uh and uh a man who was born Albert Einstein changed it to Brooks. Um and there's a scene where uh you know Hunter says this is what you have to do and I think Brooks challenges her or and says or maybe Kurt It must be it must be wonderful to know everything. And she <laughs> says No, it's horrible right.
1: Because
2: You're always, you're always going over a waterfall. uh, You're always heading for an iceberg and you can always see it. You're screaming, please don't do that! And they do it. And you go down with them. That's what happened to me during the dot com. I had been writing my newsletter and I had 17 different uh, editors and assignments, gigs, income streams. uh, And I was screaming at people. This is going to crash. This is going to crash. This is too, this is, there's not enough money coming in to justify these valuations. To throw in the billions of people who haven't proven that they can do anything with it, it's going to crash.
1: I remember, and that's that's right It'll when crash. I that's right when I first became an adult. I remember some of those business models you'd hear about, and even I at the time, like the, I could barely drink, and at the time I was like, You're, "You want to do what?" That that no. That's not how that like that's not what happens. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was
2: I was in a I was in a bus at a in two thousand at a show called Ad Tech. Uh which was one of the first advertising technology shows. And um some we were coming back from some really cool uh float on the day that some sponsor had dreamed up. We'd all been drinking, and this guy was complaining. He said, "My my startup, it's not fair. They keep on, they, people with the money keep on demanding more equity for for less and less money." And I by uh, this time, I, I I'd seen a few parties, I'd seen a few tool uh, turns of the wheel, and I was just laughing. <laughs> I couldn't help myself. I'm the guy at the bed just laughing my ass off because. Child,
1: let me tell you. I remember there was a story about, I I, I don't want to say the wrong name, so I'm not going to say it. But I remember there was a, a name, there was a company, or not even, I don't think it was a company yet. There were these people that were floating a name on Wall Street. Just a name, right? They weren't even, they hadn't even figured out what it was yet. Like what the the verb of this name would be, okay, um, and this name got uh, you know stupid amounts of money thrown at mm-hmm. from all different people, and then it of course crashed. <laughs> That's one example. But, well,
2: you look. At, you ever wonder how Mark Cuban got to be so rich? Uh,
1: Broadcast dot com, right?
2: Right. It didn't have the rights to anything. He would just go and say, hey, can we uh, uh, take a feed and, uh, and put it on the Internet? Yeah, yeah I'm fine. Well, I don't care. I know what that is. What's the Internet? And he, he collected. He said, I got these hundreds of sports teams, their games are on my broadcast.com. And Yahoo came along and said, wow, look at all that content. Oh, we need content. We will pay you billions of dollars in our stock if you sell broadcast.com to us. And he did and then he saw what was happening in the stock market, and he waited for Yahoo to quadruple in value, and then he saw right. it a <laughs> more before it all crashed and burned. And that's how he became a billionaire. Right. But you know, he and that's funny because
1: the the whole model of I mean that broadcast dot com so, like doesn't even e- exist anymore. No, actually, it does. It's called streaming. Well, right, but you can't, I mean... It does. You pay for it. Right, but it's not all under one roof.
2: It's it's, it's not coming from Broadcast.com.
1: Yeah, exactly.
2: It's coming from other companies. Right. You know why? Because Yahoo was stupid.
1: That's right.
2: Yahoo had a CEO named Tim, wait for it, K O O G L E, back in the late 90s. And Tim Kugel really didn't know what to do, so he listened to Wall Street tell him what to do. And what Wall Street said was, you've got to be a portal to the Internet. You've got to buy all the content. You've got to control it all. And he tried to. He bought all sorts of stuff. Bought broadcast.com. He bought uh, GeoCities, which was, you know, free websites. He bought a bunch of stuff. And he didn't focus on search anymore. And in the same year that he was running... Yahoo, this, these two grad students at Stanford started to get a company. They decided to call Google. <laughs> run with Google, and you know the rest is history because they knew what they needed to be focused on. Needed?
1: Is that really why they did that? Does no, it run?
2: No, it sounds quenching.
1: Because I heard another story, which I thought was real, but.
2: It had like the biggest number that they could think of. It was a Google. Yeah,
1: yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah, I was basically it.
1: A Google. Right, exactly. Huh.
2: And, and it huh. never would have been, you know, it, that that was the 1998 startup. And, you know, Amazon existed during that era. And the stock peaked at 295 a share before it crashed and burned. And we right. probably could. You could have gotten it in 2002 for about 10. And it didn't pass that 295 figure for 10 years. And in 2013, when I was about time writing for a site called Seeking Alpha, I started pounding the table for what this cloud would mean to Amazon and what they might be capable of. And all these people, (laughs) you know, because they could write back on the discussion thread, you're an idiot. Oh, you don't know anything. What do you know?
1: All, all the, buy some oh, shares. All the old economy people were like, no. <laughs> now, there is no such thing as the old economy
2: not anymore. You know, you're either in the new economy or you're pretty much worthless. Yeah. it. Now, I'm not saying that it, it's going to be a straight run to glory here. I think we are setting up for another Y2K crash again. Because there's way too much money chasing way too much garbage. Way garbage,
1: garbage in what area? Tech or?
2: And every kind of stock, every kind of thing you can imagine is overpriced. Yeah. Uh, you know, not only are stocks overpriced, bonds are obviously overpriced because you can't get any interest from them. You can't get any money for money.
1: Right. And so, and
2: yeah. land is overpriced, real estate is overpriced. Everything
1: is over time. I remember reading... I think I've told you this before, but I remember reading, like, these think pieces right before the, what ended up becoming the pandemic, right? About how, like, there were these condos that, at the end of the day, like, when they built that condo, uh, nobody imagined that condo would be worth $2 million and nobody who built that condo back in 1970 whatever, 60 whatever, imagined that that condo would be worth $2 million and all the problems of condos like that
2: exactly and that, but that's because people don't understand the nature of money You there? Hello?